Happy New Year. Hard to believe it's 2020. Hard enough to see 2019 go so fast, but you realize you've got to be careful when you write 2020 that you don't just write 20. Because somebody might come along and say 2019 or 2018, or they wouldn't say 2021 and 22, I don't think, on your checks or what have you. I don't know why I said that, but it was a happy new year. As we open our Bibles, uh, we're, we're beginning a, a, a series on Acts. Acts has 28 chapters. That's a long series. However, we may take a chapter at a time or so, almost chapter, but then pinpoint something in that chapter that we're, that we're looking at. But uh, in the bulletins from now on, you're going to see uh, the, the passage for the next uh, sermon and, and, the, and the scripture to be passed for you to prepare yourself and be ready in order to come. Does that make sense? So, so we'll, we can do it together uh, in that way. We have a wonderful worship leader here that takes care of making sure that all of, all of that happens, and I appreciate him so very much. Thank you, Colin. Let, we better just get started. Let us stand out of reverence to God and His holy and precious and infallible Word. Let us listen to God's holy Word together in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard of me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Ol called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
We begin reading the first account I compose, O Theophilus. Uh, who was this Theophilus? Uh, Luke mentions him twice. Uh, he mentions him at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and he mentions him now here at this point. And some think it's just, it's not a name. It's just a reference to Christians uh, because the name Theophilus means lover of God. So to all lover of God. The problem with that is that in the Gospel of Luke, he's called most excellent Theophilus. And if you look at Acts 24, where Paul is brought before Felix and, and the, the uh, lawyers uh, for the lawyer uh, for the Jews were, were there uh, speaking against him, they said, oh, excellent Felix. And Christians don't, do not usually address each other as most excellent. Most excellent James. <laughs> Let's talk. Most excellent David. You know, we don't do that. And so, more than likely, it's a name of a person who is high-ranking official of some sort. Perhaps he is uh, less of, of, of a formal approach to him in the gospel than he is in Acts, where he says, just, O Theophilus. He doesn't add on, most, most excellent. One would hope that that's the case, that the gospel took a change in his life and made a change, you know, and uh, they, they became closer together. So first we have the name in the Gospels, then we have the name in Acts, and what we want to do is say, thank you, Theophilus, <laughs> for that wonderful Gospel, and thank you, Luke, uh, for that wonderful Gospel in Acts uh, that we have, uh, without which we would really be much more the poor, poor uh, for it. Acts, in fact, is the one main account that tells us what happened after the resurrection and ascension and gives us some kind of historical background where we can plug in the epistles and, and, and our understanding and knowledge of what, what was taking place. But we can do more than that, too, because uh, we're going to be preaching through it and bringing out different things. We've, we have uh, named this whole series Truths That Transform. Because I believe that when you look at Acts and what happens in Acts, that we will receive from God's Word truths that transform lives. Of course, Luke says here in verses 1 and 2 that uh, the gospel account went from what Jesus said and did from the very beginning of his ministry all the way to the ascension. You'll notice that Acts begins at the ascension and goes on from there. Of course, this raises up a question which a, a dear friend of mine who's making a whole series on this uh, is doing. Why did Jesus leave? We know why Jesus came. The Gospels tell us. And we're told in the epistles, you know, how to interpret uh, what happened in the Gospels. But why did Jesus leave? It's a good question. I think Luke in Acts is going to resolve that particular question. And it begins here in verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. 
by many convincing proofs and appearing to them over a period of 40 days. You know, the disciples experienced unbelievable calamity from their point of view at that particular time. They had followed the Lord Jesus who had promised and said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And look to me and live. And then they watched as he experienced a horrible death on the cross and was buried. It's a devastating loss compared to what he had told them who, who he was. But then he was raised from the dead. He did rise. And furthermore, we, re, we read right here, he presented himself by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. The, the word for uh, convincing proofs is one word in the Greek. Convincing is there to try to, to uh, explain the proofs. The word simply means proofs, but I looked it up in a Greek dictionary, and it said that it's translated proof, and then in parenthesis, decisive. And according to some commentators, it's a term that indicates demonstrable uh, proof, the strongest kind of legal evidence. And for 40 days, he appeared to them again and again. It reminds us, this word appeared reminds us, at least reminds me, uh, because I've studied it quite a bit, the, of how the gospel is presented in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, I'm passing on you that which I also received, says, says Paul to the Corinthians, that Christ died for our sin according to the Scriptures and that he was buried that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures and that he was seen or that he appeared. All of that is an early confession of some sort that Paul took that they knew and he put in right there. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried. That he rose again from the dead according to the scripture and that he was seen. He appeared. Uh, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to say he appeared first to Peter. He didn't tell everybody that he appeared to. He's just writing this, this letter to the Corinthians and telling some main people to whom he appeared. To Peter, then to the twelve, over 500 at once. Then to James, the uh, half-brother of, of Jesus. And then to all the apostles. And then, one, and then to Paul as one untimely Born, you'll remember that that passage and how how he uh, develop, develops that. But the point is appearance, and the appearances were important for forty days. For forty days, he appeared, he conversed, he ate meals, more appearances, more convert conversations. You know, God is truly gracious. He knew what they needed. And they definitely needed 40 days. Not just one day, or two days, or three days. They needed extensive time. He knew their weaknesses. He made sure that they knew Jesus was risen. The apostles ended up without any doubt that he had risen from the dead. They had many decisive proofs. And they were ready to be sent. 
Now, that's true of all of us uh, as well. You can't proclaim Christ is risen if you don't believe he is risen. <laughs> you can't believe that Christ is risen unless you believe he's risen. And that's the foundation of our faith. Here, here is how Paul talks about it, just play, puts it out there plainly. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sin. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. A transforming truth, wouldn't you say? Now along with the resurrection, it says what Jesus was talking to them about all this time. He was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. This, I would suggest to you, is one of the most significant, important, uh, significant, important, significant, important uh, little phrases in the Bible. The kingdom of God. And actually, I, when you read verses 4 through 8, you think, boy, they're jumping from here to there to there. No, it all has to do about your understanding of the kingdom of God and how it was working out as uh, in terms of the progress of the gospel. I'm going to first of all read verses 4 through 8 for us to remind us there. They were uh, speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, verse 4, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, you see, it says, gathering together. So when they come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, Jesus is gathering together. He's saying, you're to wait here until uh, you receive the promise of the, uh, the Spirit that I told you about. They, talking about the same incident, they're coming together and they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? He then returns back and says, says it's not for you to know times and epics uh, under the Father's authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you're clothed with the with the Holy Spirit. Now all this has to do with the kingdom of God. The disciples were thinking from a human perspective, restoring Israel. You remember when the two men were going to Emmaus and Jesus met them on the road there, you know, the resurrected Lord? The two men said to him, we had trusted that it had been he who should have redeemed Israel. That's where the minds of the disciples were. That's where our minds often are. What are you going to do here on earth now? What, what, what's, you know, how are you going to affect the government? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? But Jesus has a much broader perspective uh, in mind. 
He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, let's begin with the Old Testament. <laughs> the kingdom of God was viewed from four perspectives. Forgive me for teaching at this point, but this is, this is really important to understand. Forgive me? Forgive me? Forgive me? Nate, Sam. Four perspectives of the kingdom of God. General, general uh, kingdom of God, the particular kingdom of God, the present kingdom of God, and the, and the future kingdom of God. First of all, that the, the, general, the perspective of the general kingship of God means that he is king over all. You go to Psalm 47, and there is a, there is a psalm concerning uh, God being king over all, everything of his creation. But he is especially, particularly, king of his people. You go to, to Psalm 122, and you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem because he is king over, over his people, king over his people. Okay, that's the particular kingship. The present kingship is he is king now. You don't have to wait until someday for him to become king. But you also have the future kingship. There will be a day that comes when... <laughs> And, uh, and we have scriptures that, that talk about that day to come when that's going to happen. Well, would you know that when we look to the New Testament and we look to what it says about our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, it can be said there is a general kingship, a particular kingship, a present kingship, he is king now, and a future kingship when he comes again and reigns forever. This becomes the subset within which the gospel thrives. We usually call it in theological terms the sovereignty of God. I like the biblical terms that we have just suggested because it has to do, it's not a static thing, it's a dynamic idea. His kingship, his rule, his reign is real. And on that we have his sure promise and, and statements from Scripture. Now, where was I? And Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the remotest part of the earth. Uh, verse 8, first of all, basically, we, we all understand that as providing an outline for Acts. Because you shall be a witness for me in Jerusalem, to Acts 1 through 7, all Judea and Samaria, 8 through 12, and unto the uttermost part of the earth, 13 through 28. And we see that. But that's not the important thing here. I mean, that's wonderful that we have an outline at the very beginning, and that it's carried through by the apostles, very specifically uh, led by uh, God's Spirit. But more importantly, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission that you should receive power, goes back to Matthew where he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's your general kingship. If ever there was a general kingship, there it is. One of the statements about it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. Let's see, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, going, make disciples. 
And then of all nations, baptizing them in the nation, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things what I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. You should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the remotest part of the earth. Jesus was sending them out as my witnesses. In the original, the my seems to be in an emphatic position. They didn't just witness about me. My witnesses. When you are witnessing, you are witnessing on my behalf. You are witnessing about me. You are my uh, witnesses. The Apostle John saw himself in that light very well in 1 John 1, where he begins uh, 1 John immediately, uh, where he says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have beheld, and our hands have handled, or the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He, he knew what, what he was witnessing to. It's a beautiful witness of, the, of one who they, they had seen and heard and their hands had handled of the very words of life. His head was on Jesus' breast in the Lord's Supper. So he had particularly touched the Lord Jesus and he knew what... If you go to Luke 24 and the Gospels version about Jesus' commission... In Luke 24, verses 45 to 47, it says, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. To all nations. Now that, that really expresses the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the kingship, the rule or reign of God. That's the core of the gospel. And we're in, in a battle today over belief statements. I call them belief statements. There's a war going on. There's a battle about truth. Many believe and are trying to push it quite strongly that truth is what you as an individual say it is. You can believe whatever you want, but it is only truth for you so keep it to yourself and shut up, be private about it. Of course, these objections are belief statements. That's what they believe. Philosophers would call them pre-understandings. It's an understanding that you have that controls how you receive and, and, and uh, respond to things. And uh, some of our Reformed brothers call them presuppositions that, that you come with. So in effect, they're saying, I believe this, but you cannot say what you believe, uh, which is disingenuous at, at best. But we can't hold back what we believe. You know why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. And if we're concerned at all about the world and about our neighbor and about life, about people, we can't keep quiet. You remember in their Jerusalem, as they were starting from Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and so on, they starting in their own Jerusalem. The Pharisees have Peter and, and, and John in there, and they're saying, you shut up about Jesus. I don't, we don't want you to be mentioning him again. And you remember Peter's response, that we cannot but speak about Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be 
saved. They are begin in Jerusalem. My dear friend who's developing a whole series on this uh, calls it, who is our neighbor? Forgive me. Three things you'll hear me say all the time. There are three major commandments. You didn't know that. There are three, not two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. As R.C. says, who in the world has ever loved God with all their heart, all their soul, for one hour, for one minute, for one second, for one, what do you call those little seconds? Anyway, one of those. We haven't. Then you, The second commandment is, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor means nearby. Your next door neighbor. Across the street neighbor. You're to love them as yourself. Hardly. Often we don't even know the names of our neighbors next door. The third is what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. So you're loving God, you're loving one another, but you're loving your neighbor. This falls into the neighbor category. Uh, uh, here, one who is near uh, to, uh, to witness about Jesus, beginning in our own Jerusalem, ending at the end of the earth. Luke 24 uh, says in verses 45 to 45, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and die, etc., to all the nations, should be preached to all the nations. You find this hundreds of times in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 22, which is the suffering servant psalm, where it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him. Psalm, 20, psalm 2, which is the enthronement psalm, the messianic enthronement psalm, uh, where God says to his son, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. And it also says, I shall give you the nations as your inheritance. Or Psalms 86, All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's in the Old Testament, numerous passages about the nations. And then it comes to the end uh, in Revelation. Uh, we read, after this I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice that it's plural here on tribes and peoples and tongues <laughs> from every nation. It pictures tribes, peoples, tongues in an age to come. John is making explicit that the final goal of God in redemption is to gather all nations into one diverse but unified assembly of peoples. It will be a renewed, perfect future world in which we retain our cultural differences, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, but we will be one. 
worshiping him. Remember the question we raised? Why did Jesus leave? Well, we've just seen the answer. That every tribe, people, tongue, nation shall be able to worship the Lord God. Here's what we find happening today. Actually, it's not all that much today. It's because this statistic that I have is about uh, 15 years old. But it's probably gotten better than today. And it said that in 1900, Christians comprised 9% of the African population and were outnumbered by Muslims 4 to 1. In the 60s, uh, Christians passed Muslims in number, and by 2000, they comprised 44% of the population. There are six times more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than in all of the USA. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the USA. Korea went from 1% to 40% Christian in 100 years. And experts believe the same thing is going to happen in China. Christianity is growing not only among the peasantry, but also among the social and cultural establishment, including the Communist Party. Os Guinness, a disciple of Francis Schaeffer, predicts that within 50 years, China will be a Christian country. They are diverse, multicultural, all nations. For now, we need to be focused on our neighbor. Finally, to, to the ascension. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking, and a crowd, cloud received him out of their sight. Of course, we have to, in a sermon, have a quote from Calvin. So you'll notice that these verses are very deliberate and literal. Calvin said, For if so be that he had vanished away secretly, then might the disciples have doubted what had become of him. But now there is no cause why they should doubt whether he, whether he was gone. He went visibly, clearly, with a number of watching and, listen, and, and seeing what happened. But second, we read, a cloud received him out of their sight. Uh, actually, I translated, a cloud removed him from their eyes. That's the literal translation. You know, he's lifted up, but a cloud removed him away from their eyes. All of a sudden, he's in the cloud. Okay. I would submit that this was not any ordinary cloud. Don't think of cumulus or cirrus clouds. Think of what's called a Shekinah cloud that accompanied all major appearances of God in the Old Testament. The cloud in the wilderness, the cloud over the tabernacle, the cloud over the temple when the temple was finished and the sacrifice was made. Think of the cloud in the New Testament during the transfiguration. Third, I remember R.C. Sproul teaching that the New Testament views the goal of the life of Christ as reaching its zenith in the ascension. The ascension. He said numerous times that the ascension is the most important point in the life of Christ. That the church focuses 
on the birth, death, and resurrection, but not the ascension. It ought to be focusing on the ascension. For in the ascension, the, the New Testament community viewed it as the kingdom of God coming in power, Christ being inaugurated as king, Christ being enthroned as Lord. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, you know the passage, for God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things of heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But another passage which you may not be as familiar with, but it's in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, following the prayer, or maybe even a part of the prayer, where he's praying that, that they might hope, that the Ephesians might know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power, which he energized toward us uh, when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him. Listen and see if you can see general, particular, present, future. And seated him uh, <laughs> far, far above all principalities and powers and rulers and dominions. I missed something. And seated him at the right hand of, of God uh, on high uh, not, so that he uh, would, would uh, rule not only in this age but in the age to come and seated him, <laughs> now I'm stumbling, uh, and, and put him over all ruler, principalities, powers, rulers, dominions, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And, and he, he has uh, put all things under his feet, and to him he gave to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filled all things in all. That's the ascension. What happened? And then we read of one more important event here. In verse 10 and 11, And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why... Do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. As he went into heaven in clouds of great glory invisibly, so he will come back. And Mark 13 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Matthew says it more fully. He says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, Shekinah, with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. 